Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Every year around this time in Lent, the lectionary gives us an opportunity to get reacquainted with Abraham and Sarah. In the biblical history of salvation, they are pivotal figures in their own right, but they loom even larger because of the special importance that St. Paul ascribes to them. We are probably familiar with Abraham and Sarah largely through the Sunday school stories that we heard as children or through the occasional lectionary selections like the one we read this morning from Genesis. We may know some of the stories about Abraham and Sarah. I particularly like the one where Sarah laughs out loud when she hears the divine messenger tell Abraham she's going to be pregnant in a few months, and she knows good and well she gave up sex at 90. <laughs> we know some of these stories, and they're not without their humorous elements. But we seldom have opportunities to become familiar with how these individual stories figure in the larger plot of the ongoing narrative as a whole. And these stories gain significance when we read them in relation to the larger plot. So let's briefly recap the narrative from Genesis, to the, from the beginning in Genesis to the episode that we read today. In the book of Genesis, Abraham and Sarah appear at the point when God takes the initiative in an attempt to reverse the downward spiral of human history. God created human beings and made us in his image as custodians of the whole earth, but we soon became violent. We began killing one another and abusing the rest of creation. In the great flood, God tried to wipe the slate clean and start over again with human beings descended from Noah, the only good man that he could find. But God soon realized that even Noah's children would again show the same propensity to violence. So he came up with an alternative. In order for human beings to regain the lost blessing that God originally gave us when he made us, and therefore live in justice, peace, and plenty, God devised an arrangement that would keep us aware of our problem and elicit our cooperation in dealing with it. This arrangement was called a covenant. A covenant is basically any relationship with explicit obligations, like a treaty or a business contract, for example. It's a distinctive feature of Judeo-Christian tradition to imagine that human beings and God are related in this way. We have a contract, an agreement with God, as it were, and both parties have to do specific things to comply with it. The first phase of the covenant was implemented right after the flood as an agreement symbolized by the rainbow. God promised never again to undo the order of creation, and human beings were obliged to recognize that it's wrong to kill one another and wrong to kill other creatures for any reason besides food. The human race lived for a while under the terms of this covenant with mixed results. God decided that in order for this arrangement to work better, he needed people who would actively promote it. So God implemented a second phase of the covenant relationship. He chose a particular people to advance his intention to bless and save all peoples. And this is where Abraham and Sarah come into the picture as the ancestors of this people, the Israelites. 
Before we focus on their particular role, though, let me repeat something I just said. God chose a particular people to advance his intention to bless and save all peoples. One of the most commonly misunderstood biblical ideas is the concept of election. The idea that God has Israel as his chosen people. Many people seem to think that this means that God chose one group to favor at the expense of others, to save some but to condemn the rest. However, a careful reading of scripture shows that this is not the case. And the story of Abraham and Sarah is a case in point. This story in particular shows that God chose Israel in order to help him carry out his plan for the salvation of all peoples. When Abraham and Sarah appear on the scene, they are very old. And God nevertheless calls them to leave their home in Mesopotamia and set out for an unknown land. He explicitly tells them that he will bless not only them, he promises that through them and their descendants, all nations will be blessed, all will be saved, all will recover the blessing that God originally gave human beings when he created us, and so be able to live in justice, peace, and plenty. It was a very unlikely proposition. How would you respond if your heirs were promised a great future, but you knew you were too old to have children? How would you respond to a call to just start walking when you had no idea where you were going? Would you want to accept the frightening responsibility of God's plan of salvation depending on you? Why would anyone in their right mind say yes to such an invitation? Abraham and Sarah must have been captivated by the marvelous promise of God's overall plan. It was certainly a goal worth entertaining, the blessing of abundant life for all. They were so drawn to this dream that they were willing to risk everything, despite the obstacles that seemed to make it impossible. God had given them and their children a special part to play in the realization of God's grand plan. How could they refuse? So Abraham and Sarah entered into a covenant relationship with God. And for their part, they agreed that they and their descendants would bear witness to God's intention to bless and save all people. This is what the name Abraham signifies. I don't know if you noticed, but in today's reading, he's still called Abram, not Abraham, Abram, which means exalted father. But pretty soon in the story, he's gonna, his name is going to be changed to Abraham, which means father of a multitude, Abraham. That is a multitude of nations, thus indicating that many other nations will eventually be brought into the same covenant relationship with God that he has with his chosen people, Israel. For his part, God promises that he will provide Abraham and Sarah with what they need to carry out this mission, which is descendants and land. For St. Paul, Abraham and Sarah are the main heroes of the biblical story. They are the models of the kind of faith that Jesus invites from his followers. They model trusting in God's plan for the salvation of all, despite the obstacles that make it seem impossible. They exemplify full cooperation with God in the realization of his desire to renew creation, despite their not seeming to have much to contribute. Paul views the coming of Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and Sarah, because through faith in Christ, people of all nations can be brought into the same covenant relationship with God. Thus, Paul says in Romans, 
that all of us who have faith in Christ Jesus are, in effect, the children of Abraham. With this larger picture in mind, let's look at what happens in today's Old Testament reading. At this point in the story, what's at stake is whether the covenant will continue at all. Abraham and Sarah have arrived in the promised land, but thus far they have not yet experienced much of what God promised them. In due time, a son Isaac will be born to them, but at this point they still do not have children. And although they are in Canaan, they are still wandering around and have not yet found any place to settle down. They find themselves childless and landless. Why shouldn't they abandon this project? Abraham bitterly complains that with no children of his own, he's going to have to designate a household slave as his heir. And God responds by reiterating the promise of children. And our translation says that Abraham believed God, but the Hebrew implies much more. It's the same root from which the word amen comes. And it means that Abraham reaffirmed his total trust in God's promise. And the text then says that Abraham reckoned the, that God reckoned this to Abraham as righteousness, which is the traditional way of translating this phrase. But again, the Hebrew implies much more. Another translation would be, God recognized Abraham's commitment to justice. In other words, despite the apparent setbacks, God sees that Abraham is still fully committed to cooperating with God's plan to bless and save all and that Abraham trusts God to provide him with the wherewithal to carry out this mission, which in this case means descendants. And so then God takes him out to look at the starry night sky and says, look up there, see these stars. This is how many descendants you will have. But Abraham next complains about the lack of land. At this point, it doesn't look like he and Sarah will ever get even a toehold in Canaan. But God gives him a confirming sign. He has Abraham prepare a sacrifice by cutting several animals in two and laying the halves of the bodies side by side. Abraham waits all day, protecting the carcasses from the birds of prey, and then on into the night. He falls asleep, and then wakes up to experience what the text calls a terrifying darkness. And then he sees it. Fiery images moving back and forth between the pieces of the sacrifice, breaking through the darkness. This shining symbol of the divine presence signals to Abraham that God will eventually make good on the promise of land. Even if he and Sarah don't live to see it, at least their descendants will. So at the beginning of today's reading from Genesis, God's covenant relationship with Sarah and Abraham is threatening to break apart. But by the end of it, the covenant is renewed. And in the process, we see something of the kind of faith that Abraham and Sarah model for us. First, they see their individual story as an integral part of the larger cosmic story of God's efforts to bless and save all people. And not only all people, all creation as well. Despite the obvious objections and obstacles to the possibility of justice, peace, and plenty for all, they find it to be the most compelling narrative to live by, the most compelling cause that they could commit themselves to. They find meaning for their lives through their commitment to this project. 
Second, although it may seem they have little to contribute, they trust that God will provide them with whatever is necessary for them to make an effective difference in this collaborative project of blessing and saving all. Third, they're willing to continue the covenant adventure even though it entails passing through what the text calls terrifying darkness. The story doesn't say much about this experience, but in other places, the same terminology connotes a close brush with death. In other words, their commitment to the covenant will bring them into life-threatening situations and also enable them to survive. Was St. Paul right? Is the faith of Abraham and Sarah represented in today's reading the definitive model of faith for Christians? Is it the faith for you and me? I can only answer for myself, but I think Paul was right, not only for his time, but also for ours also. As far as I can see, this is the only kind of faith that is adequate to the global crises that confront us today. Whether it be global warming, the growing radical economic inequality of the haves and have-nots, the erosion of democracy, or outbreaks of terrorist violence. A faith that aspires to anything less than the renewal of creation, anything less than restoring the blessings of peace and justice and plenty to all people. A faith that aspires to anything less than the faith of Abraham and Sarah will simply render itself irrelevant on the world stage. So today's encounter with Abraham and Sarah leaves us with some challenges. Do our lives, like theirs, find meaning through our involvement in God's project to bless and save all? Do we, like them, trust that God will provide whatever we need to make a difference in that struggle, even though it may seem like we don't have much to contribute? Do we, like them, recognize that this is a risky, perhaps even life-threatening, but nevertheless thrilling proposition? Who wants to sign up to be children of Abraham and Sarah?